Well, one of the things that has become quite evident in our own country that aligns with what we've seen throughout human history is that godless nations, pagan nations, are incapable of maintaining the social order. So whenever a nation abandons God, God's laws, God's word, God's principles, what starts to happen? Well, the universities start to crumble and people start graduating with perhaps less intelligence than they did going in. And the educational systems that our children are in start to crumble. And instead of teaching the things that people actually need to equip them for life of service and employment, they're inundated with all sorts of godless, hedonistic, pagan ideologies. Medical systems start to become corrupted. So while the medical establishment claims to be all about the science, if you jump online, you'll notice even this week that our own health unit here in Windsor, Essex County, is actively promoting the pride movement here in Windsor. What does that have to do with medicine? So we, what we see is institution after institution starts to crumble and starts to succumb to these godless ideologies because pagans are simply not capable of maintaining the social order. Now in Daniel chapter one, we learned that Daniel was taken from Judah in southern Israel, captured along with his entire nation by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC and deported up into Babylon, into what's known as the Fertile Crescent, Mesopotamia. And there he is selected as one of the keeners among the deportees to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And he's tested and he is not comfortable with some of the things he's asked to do. So he stands his ground. God comes through miraculously and provides for him. He accelerates beyond the peers of his own age and God rescues him. And we learned a lesson there about the state's attempt to assimilate godly people into their godless ideologies. And when we stand back and say no, and we resist that, God comes through and he blesses us and enriches us and encourages us. But what happens from there? So Daniel is, is now in Babylon. He's been rescued from potential death for disobeying the king. And he is now in a position of influence. And in this state with all sorts of craziness going on around him, What's interesting is as the state lives out their godlessness and their pagan ideologies, they, they come up with a problem and they come to a problem that they can't resolve. The king has a problem. We're gonna read about that momentarily. He calls all of his resident experts into his chamber, everyone that he can think about. They can't solve the problem. And so all of a sudden it's like, what do we do? They don't have access to God's word. They're not living for God. They're not subject to God's laws. And in that group, there is one man and his three friends, but one man notably who stands up and says, actually, I can answer the question that the king is asking. And he successfully does so and God gets the glory. So what I, the message I wanna sort of park on today is this idea that when, when nations plunge into the abyss of godlessness and chaos and foolishness and frankly, idiocy. Eventually, 
in order for them to in order for them to rebuild, in order for them to move forward, in order for them to understand, they, they will eventually call upon godly people for answers. We've seen this time and time again in history, that we may find ourselves in the remnant, we may find ourselves exiles within our own country in some respects, but as the institutions of culture and culture itself crumbles around us, eventually in time, might take a century, might take two, might take three, it'll be people like you that will rebuild the nation unless Jesus Christ returns first. Because you have God on your side, you have God-granted intelligence, you have God's word and God's wisdom. And in the meanwhile, what God will do to those who would usurp his authority is he will continue to humble them. He will continue to humble them. So the, one of the things we're gonna see in this text is that the godless really do lack understanding. There are certain things you can figure out without God. I got a math question. Two plus two, hmm, what does it equal? You don't need to pray about that. There are certain things, certain conclusions you can arrive at without God. But inevitably, life will throw you curveballs. There will be mysteries, there will be roadblocks, there will be things that come your way that require God to move, God to intervene. And Daniel is the man, as God's representative, that provides the answers to the questions that no one else can answer. So let's enter into the text, Daniel chapter two, verse one. It's, it's a lengthy text. Normally I would preach from one, two, three, maybe up to 10 verses. This is almost 50 verses. So we're gonna do, half my sermon is just gonna be reading scripture to you, but I'll try to explain it as best as I can along the way. And then we'll draw some further application. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. This is gonna be emphasized over and over again, not just to interpret the dream, but to actually tell the king what his dream was, uh, what his dream consisted of. So they came in and stood before the king and the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, Hit the pause button. From this point forward in the book of Daniel, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, chapter five, chapter six, and chapter seven, everything is written in Aramaic. Chapter one, one through two, four is written in Hebrew. Chapter eight, one through to the end of the book is also written in Hebrew. So Hebrew and Aramaic are Similar languages, they use the same alphabet called the Aramaic square alphabet, much like whether you speak French or English, we use the same letters. So they use the same letters. But Aramaic was like the lingua franca, the common language spoken throughout the Fertile Crescent down into even uh, parts of, of the Israelite region by the, by the average nation or, or average man for commerce, etc. So if you wanted to reach the most people with your message, you wouldn't be speaking Hebrew to them, you'd speak Aramaic. And as best as we can tell, the reason why this happens in the book of Daniel is because there's something unique about these six chapters from chapter two to chapter seven that God wants pagans to hear as well as believers to hear. So chapter one is primarily to gal galvanize God's people, be a man or woman of resolve. But in chapters two through seven, there's a message for the godless. And there's actually an organizational structure called a chiastic structure in 
this extended section of scripture that brings our eyes or pulls us toward the fundamental point of these six chapters. So if you study these chapters, chapter two and seven, so the first one and the last one, are about a dream that needs to be interpreted. So they're parallel in terms of what they're talking about. Chapters three and six are the fiery furnace and the lion's den respectively, where God's people are confronted with a titanic problem that they can't solve of their own strength, but God miraculously comes through and delivers them. And then chapters four and five are also dreams where we have the dreams interpreted in chapters four and five. And at the, in the middle of these chapters, at the center of this six chapter narrative, the pagan king, not the local pastor, not a gathering of exiles in a prayer meeting, but the pagan king declares his allegiance and submission to the true and living God. And the reason why it's written in Aramaic is so that everyone would see and hear that God is so strong that at the end of the day, as much as they resist, every king and every queen that has ever lived will bow the knee and pay homage to, the Lord and sa- to, our, to our Lord and Savior. So this is a message that is intended to encourage us. And then, of course, from chapter 8 onward, it's largely about future prophecy. And so that's more for God's people to galvanize us and give us hope as to how God is going to work in the future. So we're entering now into this Aramaic section. So the next six messages are going to be for believers and unbelievers alike to hear. O king, live forever. This is the, the pagan elite. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. Well, the king wouldn't have that. So the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So we have a bit of a problem here. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. By the way, when we see the same language repeated, repeated, repeated in the text, it's kind of significant. So the writer wants you to see that in the text. He wants not only the interpretation of the dream, but also the content of the dream. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know a certainty that you're trying to gain time. You being in the plural. In other words, I know you're conspiring. I know you're conspiring. I know you're the resident experts. Does that sound familiar? I know you're the experts in the interpretation of dreams and wizardry and astrology and all things mysterious that you have to be an expert to understand that the common man doesn't understand. But I know you're conspiring together to guard yourselves, to to protect your status. I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. And if you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed, you have conspired, in other words, to speak lying and corrupt words before me. Come on, experts don't lie. Experts aren't corrupt. Experts don't politic behind the scenes. Experts don't stand by one another when they're in a pinch, when there's pressure on, do they? No, experts don't do that. We can trust the experts. 
till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. King Nebuchadnezzar receives a dream. It's disturbing and he cannot by himself decode it. So within his worldview, he calls upon his experts. And the, the, the names of the, the, the titles of the people that are called include those that are capable of interpreting dreams, those that read the stars, we would call them astrologers, and the masters of the dark arts, wizards. Now listen to this. Collectively, and within the context of a Babylonian worldview, they are the experts that the leader of the state consults when he needs outside input. Now, we live in a culture where we also have experts, technocrats, that the leaders of the state will call upon from time to time to deal with the issues of the day. The difference would be is that in our modern generation, we've convinced ourselves even people within the church, that these experts are morally neutral. We know that the satraps, the prefects, the individuals that Nebuchadnezzar consulted had a religious bent. But we've convinced ourselves that secularism is morally neutral. That the modern state is morally neutral. That the technocrats and the experts of our day can simply parse the science and provide the education and render judgment in our courts of law completely without any sort of religious influence. Is that true or false? It's false. There's no such thing as a spiritually neutral state. It might be more subtle. It might be a compilation of various ideologies that they believe in and not one unified God. They don't even agree among themselves about who ultimately is in charge, but they agree it's not God. And they're quick to pat themselves on the back and declare themselves to be the experts of all things. The experts pertaining to your health, the experts pertaining to the worship and ministry of the Christian church, the, the experts that say, no, we can educate your children better than you can. And on and on and on and on and on. The experts in terms of how the world's going to end, i.e. through climate change. The, ex the experts that will tell you, and it's moving in this direction, what you can eat and can't eat. What's the next step? How many kids you can have? Who can have kids? Mark my words, this is being recorded. That's where it's going. Follow the trail of breadcrumbs. And you can predict their next step. These are the experts. And when the leader of the godless state wants input, he calls upon his godless experts. Well, to prove their authenticity, they must reveal both, both the content and the interpretation but they stall, they conspire. They are unprincipled technocrats and ideologues, not informed by God, not submissive to God as we shall see Daniel is, not calling upon God for the answers, not asking God for divine wisdom, not acknowledging how pea-brained we all actually are, but wanting to protect themselves. So the suspense builds. It's like, da 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 I wish we had the drummer up here right now. Bum, 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 bum. What's going to happen next? The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth. Well, you know where this is going. Who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter 
or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Well, now we have a challenge on the table. And there is some truth to their words that in and of any individual self, they would not be able to read someone else's mind. You can't read other people's minds. You might go to someone that claims they can read your mind. You pay them 50 bucks and they shuffle some cards around the table and try to predict your future. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's a farce. But we do learn something about the worldview that they had. The worldview that they had is, is interesting. And it's not unlike a lot of the experts of our day. All that we can know is knowable by man. And this isn't knowable, so no one can know it. So they understood the limits of human knowledge, of human epistemology. I don't care how many PhDs you are, how smart you are. We're all pea-brained compared to God. We know very, very little about the mysteries of the universe. But the second aspect of their persuasion of their religious viewpoints is that there are gods, but they aren't here. Now in modern language, we would call that deism. Theism is the belief that there is a God and he is actively engaged with his creation. Deism, which many of the founders of the United States subscribe to, is the belief that there is a God, but he has vacated the premises. He's like the landlord that shows up once a month maybe to collect the rent check. But he's not actively engaged in the world. He's not moving among us. He's not changing lives. Don't expect when you come to church to experience the manifest presence of God. Don't expect to pray and receive an answer. Don't expect God to save that person you've been praying about for a long time because God is kind of standing off in the distance doing his own thing. That's deism. And in many respects, we see that belief system being reflected in their language. So there's a clash, there's a conflict. We have Nebuchadnezzar and his panel of experts, and they're at odds. What happens, by the way, when godless people clash? Are they benevolent toward one another? Are they merciful? Are they long-suffering? Are they patient? Are they marked by an ethic of love and forgiveness like those of us that have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit are seeking to live out? No, no, that's not how it works. See, if you don't have God, your ultimate concern is you and you alone. Me, myself, and I are my top three priorities apart from God. And what happens is the godless turn on each other. Their alliances fail. Their political allegiances fail. Their expertise begins to clash. They begin to fight. They begin to divide in order to conquer one another. So the alliance starts to fail. It starts to come apart. The king starts to attack his panel of experts. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. And he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. No more experts. We're starting afresh. Kill them all, was his, his decree. So the decree went out. And the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Evidently, Daniel wasn't in the cool guys club. 
So he wasn't invited into the panel of experts. He was the dissenting voice that wasn't allowed to show up because he didn't parrot the narrative that everyone else had already agreed to. Does that sound familiar? You know, if you raise your hand in the back, you get your hand chopped off. You stick your head above the turret, you get your head chopped off. So he's, a, he's an outlier at this point. That's going to change pretty soon, at least temporarily. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. Now that's in contrast to anger and fury and conspiring. Now, is that from Daniel in his own flesh? No, none of us have prudence and discretion by ourselves. But when we submit ourselves to God and ask for God to use us as his instruments, as his vessels, we can actually pray for wisdom. Does the Bible not say somewhere that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? So you can't really be wise without the fear of God, meaning the reverential awe and submission to God. You don't need to be the brightest and the sharpest person that's ever lived. I'm certainly not. But when you ask for the Lord, as I did when I was young, Lord, give me wisdom. He's given me wisdom beyond my natural capacity, and I want more of it. And he's given it to many of you as well. He expands your mind. He gives you insight. Pray for wisdom like Solomon prayed for wisdom. And then respond with prudence and discretion to the issues of life. So Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill all the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? He wasn't aware of what was going on behind the scenes. He didn't have access to the inner club, to the science panel, to the inner workings of the board of education. Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and replied, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation of the dream. Again, Daniel was absent from this affair, not part of the inner crowd, but he was about to suffer alongside with the godless. By the way, that is inevitable. You can try to extricate yourself from as many relationships you want, but in a broken world, sometimes other people will do terrible things and you'll get thrown under the bus for it. You will suffer because of their decisions. You will be blamed because you worked for that corporation. Or you were standing a mile away from the event. Or there's a guilt by association. I mean, it's the same thing in Christianity. As soon as some big church out there goes heretical, some pastor runs off on his wife, some church embezzles money, well, that's true of all Christians. We're all on the take. We're all on the lamb. We're all hypocrites and charlatans and fakes, right? You, you know what it's like. You've been accused of this, I'm sure, many, many times. And so sometimes we suffer along with those that we are associated with. But Daniel, by faith, offers to help. Unless you think that he has some sort of an ego problem. I mean, it is crystal clear in the text. There's no ego here at all. In fact, he, like all godly people, gives glory to God even in his trials. So it says, then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them, get online and start Googling, go to WikiHow, how to interpret dreams for tyrants. And then let's, let's come up with a plan. Oh, he doesn't 
do that. He doesn't go online. By the way, in Babylon, it was called Google, not Google back then. But <laughs> he doesn't go online. He doesn't start packing his suitcases, doesn't buy a ticket out of town. He says to them, seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel, so da that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. You might think, well, they're just trying to save their own necks, but they don't really care about the wise men. We'll read on. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision in the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven and answered him and said. Now, before we read the substance of this fabulous prayer that Daniel prays, I want to emphasize this point that Daniel understands his truest resource is God. So that's his first step. And that should be always our first step in times of crisis, trial, difficulty. Not to call me. Not to go online. Not to try to get out of town. But to talk to God. And ask for God to give mercy to us. Even if we're the victims. Even if we're not complicit in whatever it is that the crisis is in the moment. So he rallies his brothers and they have a prayer meeting. Good thing to do. And together with great poise, demonstrating great poise, not chewing their fingernails down to the flesh, not popping meds to still the nerves. They have a prayer meeting. And with great poise, with discernment and wisdom, they pray to God for mercy and they ask God to reveal something to them that they know they don't have the capacity to understand by, itself, by themselves. And we should do that as well, brothers and sisters. When we're in crises, we pray for wisdom and we pray for deliverance. And God is actually capable of answering both those prayers. You need to believe that. The cool thing is, is this, as the narrative progresses, God shines when the godless fail. When the godless fail, God shines. They failed. The experts failed. They couldn't answer the questions. But God's man steps forward, and on behalf of God, God shines through him. Listen to this extended section of praise that teaches us so much about the magnificence of God. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes prime ministers and sets up prime ministers, presidents and sets up presidents, kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, meaning that God works generationally in this way. This is the God of our fathers. And unless Christ returns, our future children hopefully will say, we're praying to the God of our fathers. This is a generational God. That's God that just steps in and steps out here and there, but is with every generation. I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. So we're learning here, we're being reminded that the king of kings and the Lord of lords uses lesser kings and lesser lords 
to accomplish his purposes. We all hope for the outcome of our choice whenever there's an election. And at the end of it, we might have a day or two of bluesiness. If we don't get what we want, if the righteous ruler is not appointed or if there's not even one running, which generally there isn't, doesn't seem anymore. But one of the things that we find great hope in is that God is working out his plan, even through the tyrants that have lived throughout history. He's working out his plan. They think they're so tough and they're so sharp and authoritative, but God will even use them to refine his people, to lead people to Christ. We've all heard the stories of what happened when Western missionaries went into China in the 17 and 1800s and the country locked down under communism. There was a period of time when there was almost no access to China. And then the doors started opening up again. And surprise, surprise, there's millions and millions of millions of Christians worshiping in underground churches. I've, I've been there twice. I've taught in those churches. Fascin- it's a fascinating experience. That God is working even, even under tyranny. God will bless and build up his church even under tyranny. He will use good kings and bad kings to accomplish his purposes. A great reminder of God's sovereignty. The sovereignty of God is not just some intellectual doctrine. It brings comfort. So get up in the morning and be mad at what's going on in the world and speak the truth and try to live righteously. But when 11 o'clock comes and it's bedtime, this allows us to sleep well, unless we drink too much coffee. But this truth allows us to sleep well at night. We've done our part during the day. I ain't God. You ain't God. God is God. And even when things are difficult to take, to stomach, God is still in charge. This is a truth that the, for, the, for the godly to hear, but it's also a great reminder, a warning for the godless to hear. And in that process, when God does what we can't, God gets 100% of the credit. And because God is on our side, we don't need to walk around in fear. We don't need to walk around in fear. Concern, yes. Righteous anger at times, yes. Being proactive, yes. Seeking to make a difference, yes. Seeking to be a voice for the voiceless, yes. But not fear. And it's not like, well, we're tough guys. We don't fear because we're, we're, we're tough. No, it's because we understand this doctrine that God appoints kings and he will use them for his purposes. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. I'd be tempted to say, go ahead and destroy the wise men of Babylon, but not the four of us. But Daniel even has a measure of mercy towards his enemies. Now take note in verse 24 of the word will. I will show the king the interpretation. If you haven't read the context, you're like, man, this guy's arrogant. He's really sure of himself. By the way, you will receive that accusation from people. The more sure you are of your faith, the more often people are going to say you have an ego issue. You have a pride issue. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. You can be sure of stupidity and not be accused of that. But if you're sure of truth, you'll be accused of that. 
the leftist pagans in our culture are very sure that they're right. But no one calls them arrogant, egotistical. But godly people will be called of that, called that. But that's not true. It's, it's, it's not true of Daniel. With Daniel, he has boldness and surety because God had revealed something to him. By the way, let's just remind ourselves he didn't have a completed canon of scripture. Very limited access to God's written word. We have so many more resources than Daniel did. So much more history to look back on. So many examples and stories to refer to. He had a very limited number. And keep in mind, he was in captivity. So he could have played the whole, why Lord, do you allow good people to suffer card and abandon his faith? He may have been castrated as a eunuch. That would be grounds for a young man to abandon God, I would think. He didn't have a youth pastor breathing down his neck, a youth group to attend on Friday night, Christian resources online, biblegateway.com to read various versions of the Bible and argue over which one's the best, commentaries, a vibrant church to attend. Functionally, he was by himself, but somehow God was enough for him and he can be enough for us as well. So he, he has boldness and surety and we should have the same. We should, we should be able to say, we don't like it. We're not comfortable with what's going on. We're gonna speak out against it, but we know that God will one day conquer evil legislators. We don't like it. We're not comfortable with it, but one day God will judge child killers. We don't like it. We're not comfortable with it, but all the evil and tyranny and false philosophies that are, that are foisted upon us, God will eventually deal with all the liars, all the false philosophers, all the godless. And because of that, there will come a time, as we see in this text, and we'll see elsewhere in Daniel, when the godless, with their own lips, will actually praise God publicly. And Arioch went in, brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah, a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that was his pagan name in an attempt to assimilate him into Babylonian culture. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? He's very insistent. Content and interpretation are necessary. Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man, men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. He sounds a lot like his pagan contemporaries at first. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the later days, latter days, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be known after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, more than all the enchanters, all the astrologers. Why didn't he take credit for it? Because he's godly. He doesn't, take, he doesn't need to take credit for it. 
but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Does God use human instruments to accomplish his purposes? Yes, he does. He uses people with great athletic skills. Remember when Saul was in battle, he said, I need a guy that's really fast to run back. He uses people that can run fast. He used Samson's big muscles to accomplish mighty things. He used David's military mind to bring many victories. He, uses, he used the words of the oral prophets to speak truth. He used the words of the written prophets to write eloquent truth from God. And he uses you and he uses me. But we're just creatures. I didn't choose to be this man. I didn't choose my time of birth. I didn't choose the family I was born into. I didn't choose my body type. I didn't choose my mind. I didn't choose my culture. I didn't choose any of it. So why would I take credit for it? Anything you have that's good is a gift from God. And anything you have that's bad is because we live in a corrupted fallen order, but thank God he's renewing us and eventually we're gonna be resurrected and made new. So why would, why would we take credit for our own gifts? Very childish to take credit for something that God actually deserves all the credit for. So blessed are those that shun fame, that hide in the shadows until God pushes them into the limelight who could do nothing but put their hand over their faces and point people to the Lord who alone is worthy of worship. There's nothing grosser than a glory hog, but there's nothing more wonderful than someone that gives God all the glory when he reveals truth, when he provides for you and your family, when he blesses you and gives you insight. All the glory goes to God. So God declares his rightful rule through his minister here. So here's the interpretation of the dream now, which is pretty fascinating. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening, which means it's some sort of a warning from God. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, so gold being more precious than silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, which are of lesser value than silver, its legs of iron, which are of lesser value than bronze, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay, which are of lesser value, obviously, than iron in and of itself. Now, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, meaning it was of divine origin. And it struck the image on the feet of, clay and, or of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. So the divine strikes and destroys this statue. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold. So that that is of little value and that is of more impressive value from a human perspective, altogether were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. That little thin shell that exists on the outside of a grain of wheat that is threshed off so you can eat the grain without getting something stuck in your tooth. This great and mighty statue from a human perspective of great value, gold, silver, bronze, is blown away like chaff in the wind. And the wind carries them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone of divine origin that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now, we will tell the king its interpretation. Yes, O king, the king of kings, to whom 
the God of heavens has given the kingdom. The reason why he refers to Nebuchadnezzar as king of kings is not to distract from God as king of kings, but because this was the title that the Mesopotamian kings, dating back to Sargon, the Assyrian king, and before him gave themselves. They called themselves the king of kings. That was their title. So he refers to him by this title, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. You're impressive. But you get blown away like the chaff. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they shall not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven, the one that's revealed this dream to you, the one that I serve, the true and living God, will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that stone that was cut from a mountain with no human hand and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what will be after this, the dream is certain and its interpretation sure. This incredible vision illustrates the future from Nebuchadnezzar onward and how it is all ordered by God's sovereign plan. God knew that the gold head, the Babylonian empire, ruled at the time by Nebuchadnezzar, would rule from 605 to 738 BC and then would fall. God knew that the chest and arms of silver or the split Medo-Persian kingdom under Darius would rule from 538 through to 331 BC and then it would end. God knew that the Greek empire would rule from 331, remember Alexander the Great? to 146 BC, and then it would end. Folks, these were great kingdoms. God knew that the Roman Empire, made of iron and clay feet, would rule from 146 to 500 AD. And it was during this final human kingdom, this weak, brittle kingdom, impressive maybe in the eyes of man, but weak compared to God, that God would send his son to establish his kingdom, to remind people of his rightful rule through Christ 
And that shortly thereafter, from a historical perspective, the Roman kingdom would become fragmented, divided up into various fiefdoms, and eventually destroyed. Now, Daniel was told this in the 6th century BC. We have the advantage now of looking back and we're like, that actually happened. We know what happened along the way. Wow. How much more then should our faith be galvanized? And we saw God prophesy it, God predicted, and it actually happened. Looking back from our vantage point, we know that God fulfilled his promise, promises. Daniel looked forward in faith. We look back and it's obvious. One could argue we don't even have to have as much faith as he had. It's proven. History has proven God's power. Critics of the Bible, it's interesting, struggle so much to answer the question. And by the way, there's more, more to Daniel that makes this even more clear that he's talking about these four kingdoms. Struggle to respond to the incredible accuracy of biblical prophecies. They pull all sorts of stunts. Well, maybe Daniel was written uh, just before Jesus. They kind of retroactively went back and you know, filled in the gaps. No, no. The Bible is true. The Bible is accurate. When God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. When he says it ain't going to happen, it ain't going to happen. So you and I can find comfort then in knowing that God has ordained the next series of Canada's prime ministers. The next series of American presidents. The next dictators of North Korea who are looking a lot like the previous two I mentioned. God has ordained them all. All the kingdoms, he knows who the next pastor or pastors of this church are going to be, who your next boss is going to be. He knows who's going to follow after you generationally. He knows all things. Unless Jesus comes back, he's, he's got it all planned out. And that means he's in control. And we can find comfort in that. And in his sovereign plan, yes, does he use agents, instruments like you and I? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. It's not let go and let God. God's in charge, but he uses the instrumentation of obedient, faithful, prayerful human beings to accomplish his purposes. And that is what allows us to sleep well from 11 p.m. to whenever it is that you wake up. I know those of you that are at the 1130 obviously woke up a little later than the first crowd. Like to sleep in. Who here wasn't out of bed till 10 o'clock? Okay. A couple honest people at the back there, if you're honest. Send, them, send the tithe plate back to them. Punish them for it. Okay. So the pagan king here glorifies God and his people then hear about it. So again, this is all in Aramaic. This isn't church talk behind the scenes. This is, this is a matter of public record, you could call it. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, of which he's one. So he's, he's submitting himself to God. And a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him rule, ruler over the whole province of Babylon from prisoner to second in command. That sounds a lot like Joseph, right? They're very parallel accounts. He made him ruler of the whole province of Babylon, Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. 
He's now the boss of all the experts, of the technocrats. And Daniel made a request to the king that he would appoint Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained in the king's court. Wow. Can we all say wow? Wow. That's what God did. As a result of the interpretation, God is exalted, God's man is exalted, and God's man's friends are exalted. That's how it works. So we have plenty of reason to remain faithful to the Lord, to take heart, and to take hope that our God has already overcome the world. And we might lose sight of it in our own little fleshliness because we're pea-brained, because we lose sight of the big picture, because we lack faith, but our God has overcome the world. He's already done that. And how much more on this side of the cross do we know that? He's conquered death and the grave. We pray to a resurrected Savior who is sitting at the right hand of God the Father making intercession for us. So there is great hope. Be encouraged. Remain faithful. God will use you. It might mean we need to wait a century or two, but God will use you and God will redeem you and God will continue to bless us as we remain faithful to him. Or as we sang this morning, Jesus is gonna come back and all things will be made new. So be encouraged by these words. 